Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my trusty co-host, Chris Dorides. Hey, Chris. Hey, Mark. It's just us. I know. Marissa's uh, AWOL again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think she's uh, hiking in Japan. Yes, or cruising. Or, or cruising? Oh, she's somewhere cruising. around Japan. I'm not sure exactly. Uh, I, I guess it is an island. You can cruise, I guess, from place to place. I'm, I'm sure there must be. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Well, well, we'll miss her. I think she's gone for a couple of weeks, so she's going to miss a lot of the action, but uh, it's good for her to get away and decompress. So that's really good. And um, is there some action in the economy? Yeah, I know. It's been kind of boring, right? (laughs) (laughs) It seems like much going on. Nothing going on. (laughs) It's crazy. Uh, Well, Japan's kind of apropos. to the conversation because we're going to talk about what's going on in Japan, China, Asia Pacific, APAC more broadly, and uh, to help us with that conversation, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But I want to bring in our colleagues that focus on uh, Asia. Uh, Steve Cochran. Steve, how are you doing? Hey, good morning. I'm fine. Thanks, Mark. Good to see you. Steve, um, Is I heard... I think you told me this. Have you you not ever been on Inside Economics? Is that possible? And you've been on before. This is my first time. No way. Indeed. Really? No yeah. Way. Yeah. I blame that oh. on Chris. That's definitely an oversight. Yeah. That's definitely an oversight. Uh, because you you were you you you've made your way back to the United States, but you were over in Singapore for I don't know five six years. Uh, I was there for five years. Just came back three weeks ago. Right, right. I would blame the time zone on uh, not being invited, uh, except that uh, you haven't introduced him yet. But Stefan, my colleague in Tokyo, is on our call today as well. So uh, yeah, but he's a young man. He's willing to get up at all hours or stay up at all hours. And unlike you, you're you know you're a little prima donna. I I don't I only I don't get up at early in the morning or late at night. No. That's ex- that's actually the exact opposite. I, I don't truth. think that's true at all, yeah, Mark. That's actually opposite of the truth. And and Steve, you've been with us for I don't know since the beginning of time, right? How long? Have you Almost, been with me? yeah. So in February, it was my thirtieth anniversary. So it wasn't quite founding days, but uh, what I what what actually became known in Singapore is that I was the seventh uh, hire, ah. and so I was 007. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's good you're yeah, yeah. 007 so uh uh carl my brother paul uh, my best friend and i started the company and we were three and then celia she must be was celia she- came just after there were a couple of other okay. um uh research junior people. assistants yeah. junior people that were on the yeah. staff they were helping out right yeah yeah so funny yeah number seven very cool yeah i remember i had to work really hard to convince you to come at the time, I think. No? Uh, uh, my memory's a little bit different. I remember having an interview and I was excited to come and, and you called me and, or somebody called me and said, uh, oh, we're not quite ready to hire at this time. And oh, really? I'm like, that was okay. Uh, I don't, yeah, it must, yeah. must have been Carl. And uh, <laughs> then about six months later, uh, again, maybe Carl called me back and said, uh, I think it's time to have a serious talk, and then things worked. And you, you're a PhD regional economist from the University of Pennsylvania, right? That that back in those days there was a program, a regional economics program, right? That's that's right. There was a program. Uh, the Department of Regional Science basically regional Science, right. took economic concepts, uh, economic theory, to uh, model the spatial distribution of economic 
economic activity. And it was a perfect fit for me because my original degree as an undergrad was in urban and regional planning. So I had that mindset of, mm. of where things go in space. And um, it was only when I worked overseas, you know, after I, uh, my undergrad, I did a, a Peace Corps stint in the Philippines and then a consulting stint in Indonesia and really got interested in development economics. That's when I went back to Penn and, and did the regional science economics uh, study. Well, we're glad to have you on board, and so sorry about uh, being this being the first time. I, I find that surprising to be on Inside Economics, nah, but good to have you. No good problem. You. Indeed, and we, good to be with you today, Mark. And we got Stefan Angrick. Good to see you, Stefan. Mark, how are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Stefan is hanging hanging out today in Tokyo, I believe. That's Correct? right. Yep. And Correct. you're a newbie, though. I mean, how long? How many years have you been with us? Relative terms, I suppose, yeah. yeah. Um, a bit more than two years now, I think. So oh, it, feels, um, it feels like longer than that. Is it only two years, really? I think no? so, yeah. Okay, yeah. very cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've done a lot in a little over two years. Uh, that's the, And, and um, busy. You, you, you're an interesting fella, right? Because uh, you're of German background. Uh, you can, you're, you'll hear that in your accent. And, but you speak flawless Japanese. And, and the thing that surprises me every time I visit Japan and I spend time with you and other Moody's colleagues and we're visiting clients, uh, everyone is like so amazed at your Japanese, how good it is. Am I, am uh, I mischaracterizing things? No? I, I think there's probably a good element of people being polite uh, in that as well. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, you are, you are amazing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even the uh, these people are in, and Japanese is a tough language, right? I mean, that's one of the tougher languages out there, I believe. No? I think it's okay. I mean, I had okay. more trouble studying French in high school. So, <laughs> oh, so you knew French too? You, you knew well, French too? I don't, which kind of goes to the point about how that, I found that a little <laughs> bit more difficult. Um, well, not, not German is already a tough language, right? So, yeah, I find German tough yeah. too. Yeah, so, very much so. <clears throat> But, but a reminder, Mark, that Stefan also uh, has some Chinese uh, as well. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Right. You know some Mandarin? Yeah, I kind of came to uh, um, Japanese by way of Chinese. I've studied, uh, been studying China studies and computer science, economics in undergrad. Went to China for a year to improve my Chinese. And that was right during the global financial crisis. And I wanted to get a bit more into economics, uh, do a PhD in economics on uh central banking in East Asia. And I figured, um, what's the next best place to go? Because I've been to China, right? And figured, mm, okay, Japan seems like a good place to go. So that's that's how I ended up here then and um, picked up Japanese. So very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Kind of a roundabout uh, way. <laughs> that, it's just an amazing, you know, for an American who can't speak anything but English and doesn't really do that well either. You know, it's just amazing to me, folks like you who can master multiple languages i just it's like unfathomable to me I, it's just amazing so and you do it so 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 gracefully i mean it's just really really fun to watch but anyway it's good to have you aboard uh and you are a very astute observer of the japanese economy so i'm really glad to have you here to uh, talk about this but we'll come back we'll come back um you know we've got this uh a little bit more parochial view here uh around the u.s economy uh, and uh, there's a lot to talk about, as Chris was joking about. And Chris, um, I guess here we are sitting Friday, September 29th. Does that date mean anything to you? Anything important going on in the next couple of days? 
when it comes uh, to the economy. Uh, not your birthday. I, I don't think it's your birthday or anything. But uh, you know, you ask that question, I immediately think anniversary. I, I immediately, my brain already starts to, you know, turn you on know, the anxiety the, the day switch. The Beatles broke up in 1969. <laughs> no, no, there's no, 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 I'm thinking about no. What is you know? What's it's going a on? government shutdown. Government shutdown. Government October one. I think that that would be what uh, midnight Sunday Saturday. Oh, in Japan. Uh, <laughs> in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> no, isn't October first Sunday? Isn't yes, October? it is. Oh, okay, fine. Okay, very good. Um, so uh, we've been doing a lot of thinking around the government shutdown. Maybe uh, I'll let you go first. Uh, uh, what's your sense of what's going on and how it might play out, uh, and what kind of economic impact it might have? I mean, I've got some pretty strong views. I'll interject, but uh, maybe I'll let you just go first. If you if you have a view, if you have a strong view, I always have a view. Yeah, I knew you did. <laughs> I knew, of course, uh, nothing good, right? This is uh, yeah, just it, another series of the uh, another unfortunate series of events here, right? Just like the debt ceiling earlier this year. Here we are. Here we go again with a uh, a U.S. Congress that is showing an inability to govern. Even these are the basics, right? So mm. I just worry about the image we're projecting around the globe. So I'd love to hear what Stefan thinks of all this, uh, everything that's going on here. But uh, in terms of domestically, I mean, this is not a this is not helpful, right? I, this is going to even if it lasts just a, a brief period. We can come to some agreement uh, in short order here. It's, it's still disruptive, right? It might not have a direct economic impact. It might not cause a recession if it, it resolves very quickly. But you know, people depend on these uh, services, and we can go through the the wide range of uh, effects here. And I'm failing to see what the benefit is or what the other side is trying to accomplish. Yeah, so you know, there's been I think 22, maybe 23 shutdowns uh, since shutdowns became a thing, and they be actually interestingly enough, they became a thing uh, based on a 1980 ruling, uh, court ruling that said that um, uh, uh, that the government had to shut down if, if if they hadn't had if they didn't have funding for the operations of the of the government. And of those 23 shutdowns, I think 10 or, or even 11 have involved furloughs of government employees. That's that's the most immediate mm. casualty of a shutdown. The government employees that are non-essential, deemed non-essential, uh, go on furlough. And they're not paid. They will ultimately be paid retroactively when the government reopens, but they're not paid. Um, and his, historically... The shutdowns are short. They tend to be a week, two, or three, because the political pressures intensify pretty rapidly. You know, people think just the way you talked that, you know, what are you guys doing? It just makes no sense whatsoever. Is this really going to shut the government down over some kind of political statement? That's that makes no sense whatsoever. So uh, the pressure is so intense that lawmakers, um, you know, back down and they come to terms and we move forward. Um, the longest shutdown was back in 2018-19 under President Trump, and that lasted 35 days. That you may remember that was over the border wall. And someone reminded me that the the, the that the one of the key reasons why the president ultimately uh, relented and and the government reopened was that air traffic control workers who are essential, you know, who have to go to work, 
we're threatening that they, well, we're not going to work. I mean, we're not being paid. We got bills to pay. And so, you know, you're going to have to figure this out. And as soon as that happened, I think President Trump realized, well, this was not going to work out and, you know, back down and the government re- reopened. Yeah. I think they were calling in sick, right? That, that uh, Yeah. But I think TSA workers were already calling in sick. I don't know if the air traffic, they were getting close if they hadn't already started to do it. Uh, so they, they tend to be short. And so the economic consequence, the macro consequence tends to be small. But, you know, I have to say, you know, I've seen a lot of shutdowns. And in previous shutdowns, when you talk to folks in Washington, they kind of sort of have a, 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 a clear path towards how this is going to get resolved, how the thing will get resolved. Uh, this go around, not so much. I mean, there seems to be complete confusion as to how this might get resolved. So therefore, feels like this could go on for a while. You know, more yeah. more than a few weeks. Is that your sense of things? Yeah, that's my that's my view too. Yeah, and in terms of the economic consequence, I mean, you know, a couple three weeks, maybe even a month, not great. And obviously, for the furloughed government employees, it's really very painful. But for the macro economy, not a, not a big deal. But much beyond that, it feels like lots of things could start to break. Yeah, yeah, especially um, as we've spoken about before, they're just. A number of headwinds, right? This is not the only thing we're confronting, right? You layer this on top of the higher oil prices, the student loan repayment, you know, all the risk factors and this all the things we talked about last week on the podcast. Exactly. Right? The, and this the just... things, oil prices, higher interest rates, student loan moratorium uh, ending, debt payment moratorium ending, you know, so UAW strike. Yeah. Yeah. And it does, yeah. this does have real consequence, right? If you can't get your business application through or you're waiting on inspections right there there is fallout right that goes beyond just the direct uh government worker not being able to not getting paid right and there there are economic consequences that will start to build more and more as this uh drags on so yeah two things one uh on that on that point one is uh the thing that from this a very parochial perspective no economic data, right? I mean, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, Census, they're not essential. They don't go to work. Uh, so we don't get the employment report. We don't get the inflation report, which, you know, you might say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, we, we're, we could live without the data for a while. I, I guess the answer well, is maybe. Well, right? now you have a data-dependent Fed. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Maybe in the past we had theory; they were theory-dependent, and now it's data-dependent. So maybe it matters more, perhaps, now than than before. I, yeah, I, you're right. Again. Not perhaps; it matters more, doesn't it? I mean, it, absolutely, absolutely. Right. I mean, because the Fed's sitting here, should I raise rates one more time or not in the, the month of November when they meet again at the FOMC? And they base those decisions on data; they're data-dependent. The key data point is the employment report they get every month at the beginning of the month and then the cpi report the consumer price inflation report they get in the middle of the month they don't get those data points and all the other data points then they're kind of flying they're already flying in a fog right because the data yeah. is not precise it's based on surveys and all, as we've talked about there's all kinds of issues with that but now they're they're um flying with no data so the potential for mistake here seems to be elevated you know high something to watch yeah. out for. yeah definitely so, agree with that yeah so, you know, that's a big deal. Um, any any other um here oh, here's the other thing I wanted to say about that. I wonder, you know, we all kind of have 
certain things we can point to that might not get done if the government shut down. You mentioned a few things like, you know, EPA not being able to, you know, uh, certify EPA Environmental Protection Agency certify a chemical plant or a utility and it disrupts uh, production or food, food and drug administration, FDA can't, you know, uh, inspect a, a food processing facility or a pharmaceutical plant and they, they get disrupted. Uh, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, I, I wonder, you know, they can't get their work done. So if a company wants to go, a privately held company wants to go public, that might uh, get delayed. But here's the thing, you know, I, I suspect there are a lot, there's stuff out there, things that happen that rely on the government. Ultimately, we, we just don't even yeah. fathom, can't even fathom until it actually breaks. It's one of those things you don't, you don't, you don't know, unless you stress something, you don't really know where the stress points are. And, you know, the, the we haven't really stressed a shutdown for any length of time. You know, if it goes beyond a month, then we're kind of uncharted territory and we might see more disruptions than anticipated. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I think that's the largest risk is the that uncertainty or the unknown impact of all of this. Yeah. Do you have any things that you can those, those little kind of disruptions like the ones I just mentioned, anything that I didn't mention that you've heard that might become an issue well um so social security payments will continue right there's always a, a lot of concern around that but other related social security matters will stop right so if there are any issues people have problems with their checks or whatnot whatnot they may not wow. be able to get interesting um a response right away and then i, I believe and and there's I guess one other thing to point out is this uh, concept of who's essential and who's not. There's is, right. is nebulous as well. So the president actually has some authority here to to make that determination. Uh, but um, one thought is just employment verification, right? That the that the Social Security office might be providing as well. That may mm. not uh, mm -hmm. move forward. So if we're talking about labor market impacts, hiring impacts, that certainly could be an issue potentially. Well, needless to say, we're watching this very carefully and run different scenarios uh, so uh, for, for, for folks to use if uh, they want to get a sense of, you know, what what's the worst thing that could happen here. We've kind of tried to model that out. Hey, uh, Stefan, do, the, do folks in Japan pay any attention to this stuff at all or are they completely yeah. oblivious to this? Are they paying attention? They're very much paying attention. Yes. Very much. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what what's your what do they think other than the obvious? What are they? Um, I suppose just general concern around the whole the whole thing. Um, I mean, uh, the Japanese economy and the U.S. economy they're they're tightly linked with one another. Um, not only at the real economic level, but certainly also the financial level. So, whatever happens with the U.S. government is of is of, is of great concern. I would say. Um, like as you said before, you know it's not the first time that we're going through this. But um, um, the 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 view you laid out earlier about how this time around it might not resolve itself as quickly as it used to in the past, that's something I've heard before as well. So um, that certainly factors into the general sense of concern and the risk around that whole scenario. Yeah, I guess in China, uh, I don't know. Maybe there's a bit of Schadenfreude there. I'm not sure. Oh, good German word, right? Schadenfreude. Oh, yeah. Schadenfreude. Yeah. <laughs> I think 
How do you pronounce it, Chris? Do you say Schattenfreude or do you say Schattenfrau? I like Stefan pronounce it for me. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Schattenfreude. If I say that, though, it's like my kids. They, they, they give me all kinds of grief when I say croissant. They want to say, maybe they want me to say croissant or something. I don't know. So, dad, croissant. They're so pretentious, you know. Uh, now stick with your Philly accent. Uh, no, I don't have a Philly accent, do I? <laughs> we we had a, a listener rude. write in. You remember our listener or, uh, wrote in and said you had a, a nice Philly accent. So. Really? Gosh. <laughs> uh, I'm not so sure. Al- Alana has a Philly accent. No, only kidding, Alana. Only kidding, Alana. Um, so, uh, so Steve, what, what do folks in the, in, in, in uh, the rest of APAC think about all this? Just so, yeah, sil- silly American thing or this is, you know, how do they think about it? Well, not silly American thing, but certainly an unusual uh, uh, American thing. There's, I think there's in many ways a lack of understanding how this can even happen in a, a country like the U.S. Uh, you mentioned in China. I think they are looking at the U.S. as saying, you know what, you know, we may have troubles, but, you know, if you can't even govern, you know, our troubles may look uh, small. But the, I think the, the fundamental economic worry is that if this were to uh, be a primary factor of pushing the U.S. economy into recession, then it's going to be that much longer of a wait for demand for goods and services from the U.S. to feed back into the Asian economy and help help keep the Asian economy going. This, I think this is fundamentally the biggest worry. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll, we'll, come, we'll come back to some of these things uh, when we get to Japan and Germany. But before we uh, do that, and of course, we're going to play this, this statistics game at some point in time. I can't don't, I don't quite know when, but we'll you know we'll play it by ear as we move along here. But Chris, uh, turning back to you again in the U.S., um, yeah. this we this this week has been chock full of economic data a lot, and we got a lot this morning. Again, this is Friday, September twenty ninth. Uh, GDP, GDP revisions, income, spending, more inflation statistics, housing, trade investment spending you know it's one of those weeks where you know chock full of data of all the data series that came out this week which one would you call out and why i suppose it would be the pce deflator just because it is important for the uh pce the being a personal consumption expenditure deflator mm-hmm. the, the fed's preferred uh measure of inflation um not terribly surprising. I mean, I guess good news in the sense that it's uh, kind of where the where we would expect it to be. Core came in at three point nine percent year over year, so some improvement there. But point point one percent on month to month basis. That's right. right. That's right. Which so was... even even better than uh, expectations on that front. So, I, I, and I did not have a chance. To, uh, is there something special going on there, or because that that feels like a because we have been getting point two point two. In the last several months, point one. Any, anything special that you're aware of? You may, you may not have had time to digest I the data either. I didn't digest it. Yeah, okay. Point. Didn't have time, but uh, yeah. I didn't see anything jump out. I think um, services prices were not as strong as strong as uh, perhaps expected. Okay. Again, I have to have to take a closer look. But point one, you annualize that. That's that's no matter how you annualize, it's less than two percent per annum, right? And that is below. That's the target, the two percent uh, Fed target. So if you just take that month, and that obviously can't do that because that over, you know, overstates the case. But it is making a case that inflation is moving back towards target. 
Yes. The only issue as usual is this is looking in the rear view mirror, right? This is for August. So we know the oil prices, we know they've continued to go up and there's fear that the those uh, prices may be filtering their way through other parts of the economy. So this was a good, good trend that we're on, but you know, we know that the more recent data is you know, troublesome. Let's put it that way. More recent data is troublesome. You mean, you yeah, mean, the oil, oil prices oil, have been oil prices, to rise. Oh, Gas see. prices yeah. have been continuing yeah. to rise, right? So that's certainly something that that's going to show up in the headline, right? Whether or not it's going to continue, it makes its way into the core next month. Yeah, we'll see how much impact we'll see it how has, that plays but, out. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, and of course, if if the oil price hikes bleed into inflation expectations, which yes, then yeah impact wage demands or the willingness ability of businesses to jack up prices for everything then and it you know causes interest rates to rise you know that that would be an issue that's right that's yeah. right so far that doesn't seem to be happening but obviously this run up in oil prices is recent so we'll have to see exactly exactly yeah, yeah. so the the report is a good one but uh again it's 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 lagged right so Right. What about the GDP revision? So we got GDP Q for Q2. This was the third, so-called third print, meaning this is the third time that the uh, uh, that uh, data for Q2 2023 was released. No revisions there, but it's part of this revision. We got uh, these so-called comprehensive revisions, which are revisions that can be quite substantive, at least historically. They happen every, I think, every five years. And the revisions go way back in time, you know, years, even decades back in time. My general, I haven't had really a good opportunity to dig deep, but my sense of it is that nothing really changed all that much. The revisions were kind of modest in the grand scheme of things compared to other revisions we've had historically. Is that your sense of it as well? Yeah, that's right. I didn't see anything huge. I, all the, the one a uh, factor that did uh, jump out at me was the GDI, gross domestic income. I don't know if you saw that was actually revised up. It had been- Oh, really? So the, the gap, there's still a gap between GDP and GDI, but it's not as wide as what we were seeing previously. So there had been some, some concern that the GDP would be actually revised down closer to the GDI. It looks like instead GDI has been revised up closer to GDP. So positive news there. In just for the listener, GDP, GDI, what are they? Gross domestic product and gross domestic income. Okay. Two different ways to measure the economy. Uh, one on a production basis, that's the GDP measure. One on an income basis, right? And in theory, the two measures should be equal to each other, right? One person's production should be another person's income, right? Um, they're not because... Yeah, there are statistical issues. There are lags in how things get get measured, um, but it is, these are two measures that uh, economists have been paying attention to because they had been diverging. So, and did I get it? Did I see this correctly that the GDP numbers, particularly if you go back pre-pandemic, because again these are revisions that go all the way back in time. If I go back pre-pandemic, the GDP growth rates were actually revised up a little bit, I believe, weren't they? Do I have oh, the right? historical ones? Yeah, historical. I believe so. Not, yeah, a little bit. Not, not a uh, lot. Not, not a lot. lot but... A little, but a little bit. And then you're also saying the gross domestic income 
more recently. You're, look, you're more recently, which had been very weak. It's still weak, but it's yeah. not nearly as weak as we as it was. That's so. Right. It's, it, it tend, what you're saying is when you take this these revisions in their totality, it, it, it seems to suggest the economy might be on a bit firmer ground than we thought in the last couple of years. That's right. That's right. Okay. 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 Um, all right. Uh, any other? I have one series I'm going to call out. Uh, but uh, any other series you want to? Any other data series this this past week you want to call out? Uh, I'll save for the stats game. But uh, okay, go ahead. Oh, you might want to just mention the house price uh, data that you know we construct. Uh, we just got the August house price data based on repeat sales. What did that show? Yep. So that's the Moody's Analytics house price index. It's showed strength. Um, house prices continue to rebound here it was uh let me see if i can remember it i believe 0.8 on the on the month oh, really month okay. over month um positive year over year i can't remember the exact number uh at the moment but uh yeah showing some renewed strength in house prices right we had been decelerating uh for a while but then over the last two three months we've seen prices firming up and actually rising on a national uh, basis. I guess one interesting statistic I just calculated mm. is that 47% of the markets that we track, the 400 plus mm. housing markets, uh, hit a new high mm. this last month. So, you know, we talk about the overall uh, national picture. It shows one thing, but there are plenty of markets where they have not peaked. They continue to rise at a very aggressive rate. Mm. Uh, and, and but I, I I assume given this recent surge in long term interest rates, mortgage rates back over seven and a half percent, that's going to hit demand and presumably house prices. I, I think uh, it has yeah. to. It's got to. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we're, we've been, we've been forecasting even, it. It hasn't. Right, we've yet, surprised. Yeah. We've been surprised so far. Yeah. Because yeah. um, yeah. there is quite there's still quite a bit of underlying demand. People do have there are cash buyers and whatnot. But um, at some point, I, these higher rates have to have to bite. And I think yeah. that'll be soon. Yeah. Okay. Let me, uh, the one other statistic that came out this morning on trade, uh, and this is a good segue into the conversation around what's going on in Asia. Uh, the trade deficit on a nominal basis uh, declined pretty substantively in the month of August. Exports declined, imports declined, the whole trade volume declined. And uh, I don't want to read too much into it because some of that's just price, you know, because of the disinflation that we're seeing or deflation in some of these, you know, on on energy and goods and that kind of thing. Uh, I think that was a significantly part behind the reduction in trade volumes uh, in the month and over the past year. But um, but even abstracting from that, you know, the it feels like the U.S. trade deficit has peaked at least for a while and is starting to narrow again, and that. You know it, it, that the deficit's narrowing and trade volumes are weakening, and that has implications. You know, obviously, uh, for Asia because Asia, China, Japan, the rest of Asia depends pretty heavily on trade. Do I have that right, uh, Steve? I'm just turning to you. Does this is this a um, you know an issue uh, for the the uh, Asian economy for the APAC economy? It is an issue for the APAC economy. You know, the, the entire region. A certain extent is export uh, dependent, and 
given the the weakness in Europe, the slowdown in the U.S. economy, of course, the weakness in China, uh, exports uh, have been down in many cases uh, by uh, double digits so over a year ago uh, be because of the slowdown in global trade. And in fact, global trade uh, on uh, uh, not on a value basis, but uh, extracting from uh, uh, price effects peaked last September and continues to fall. Uh, uh, globally. So it's still a waiting game in Asia for global trade to pick up and to really add a little extra juice to the uh, to the economy. And it's not just uh, Southeast Asia waiting for China or China waiting for demand from the U.S. It's it's the whole the whole system uh, that has slowed down and, and it really needs to it's going to have to we're still waiting for it to pick up. How much of this do you think is just simply pandemic effects, right? I mean, during the teeth of the pandemic, you know, back in 2020, uh, trade, we, we all shifted to goods, right? We, we couldn't, we were sheltering in place. We couldn't spend on travel or restaurants or ball games. We were buying stuff. And that's what we're talking about here in, the, in, in terms of global trade, the, the exports and imports of everything from automobiles to consumer electronics to text uh, to uh, apparel, to furniture, those kinds of things. And, you know, uh, since the economy reopened in the back in 21 and 22, we stopped buying as much stuff and we're, bought, we're you know, purchasing services. We're out traveling and doing all those things we couldn't do when we were sheltering in place. And that, has, it, of course, when we were buying all that stuff, trade took off, boomed. And one reason why I had, we had all those supply chain issues was because there was a lot of pandemic related impacts on the pandemic, but also the fact that demand was so strong, but now we're on the flip side of that and demand is weak. Is that a, is that a big part of the story? Do you think? Oh, I think that's helped uh, develop the way this cycle has gone. Uh, we looked at exports pretty closely during the pandemic. And one of the comforting uh, factors of the Asian economy was that exports remain strong. Uh, and so regardless of the supply chain issues, the inflation, which actually was more limited in Asia than it was in the U.S. or Europe, uh, as long as exports remain strong, we, we felt pretty confident that Asia would get through uh, the pandemic-related uh, problems uh, pretty well. But then, as you said, you know, the, the patterns of consumer spending changed both in uh, North America and, and in Europe, and it could be seen very quickly. And we saw it in the semiconductor cycle of the the, the drop in demand for semiconductors hitting directly um, uh, South Korea, Taiwan, indirectly other electronics exporters. Uh, and um, that's just beginning to, to tick up. If you look at the uh, uh, global semiconductor index, uh, uh, it's, it's, it, it's turned a corner, but it's not a, it, it's got a ways to go to actually pick up, but at least it's a signal that there's a little bit of improved demand uh, maybe filtering through from the, from uh, uh, production of uh, of goods. So you're, you're sensing that we're getting to the other side of these pandemic effects. Then I think right? I think I think there's a good chance that we are. Yeah. yeah, we're not seeing it in the in in the actual IP data. In fact, IP is quite industrial weak. production. Yeah. Industrial production, exactly. Yeah. So uh, industrial production and and trade are two um, uh, data series across the region that I'm looking at very very carefully right now. Hey, Stefan, in Japan, same deal. Uh, trades is trade been off, and is it related to the, these pandemic effects we were just discussing? 
Yeah, I would say so. I um, the I don't know when I picked this up, but the, what I was right is that US consumers are looking for holidays rather than goods to explain why, um, aside from a few categories, goods exports are not doing so well, but services exports are doing pretty well. And I think um, that's similar across the region more broadly. Um, maybe one other um, area where you see this is in car exports. You've spoken about this on the podcast before as well, right? Um, car production, car exports in Japan weren't doing so well for quite some time, um, mostly on account of uh, the chip shortage, um, supply disruptions related to uh, uh, semiconductors. So that's mostly run its course now. Supply is stabilized and um, that um, uh, brought us a bit of a rebound in car exports in Japan now. But that's about the only category that's doing really well. Everything else is mostly going sideways or down a little, little bit. So I think that speaks to, you know, these pandemic effects still working their way through the system. Has Japan's auto production gotten back to pre-pandemic typical? Yeah, I guess it depends on how you how you measure it, right? I also look at the uh, look most closely at the industrial production data, and that's mm. still mostly going sideways. I suppose it might look differently when you um, look at it on a uh, vehicle number basis, etc. But a lot of Japanese auto production doesn't really happen in Japan anymore, anyway. Mm. I mean, Japan is right. producing close to the US in Mexico or in in the US itself, mm-hmm. produces in Europe. Um, you know, the the the, the companies, right? So. Um, Part of it certainly gets exported from Japan, but that might not be that informative with regard to how the sector more broadly is doing. Hmm. Steve, sticking on trade, uh, could another reason for the kind of weak trade uh, be the de- so-called decoupling between the U.S. and Chinese economies? You know, this is the idea that you know when China entered into the World Trade Trade Organization in two thousand and one, up until President Trump and the trade wars. China boomed uh, a lot of because of its advantageous cost structure. Global production moved aggressively into China, and they became a, a powerhouse. Uh, and you know, since President Trump uh, and now with President Biden, there's there's just a lot of uh, angst around the relationship between U.S. and China. And the U.S. has been, you know, at least from my perch, moving away from China and. China moving away from the U.S. Do you think that's also playing a role here in terms of the weakening in trade? Just the first of all, do, do I have that? Do I characterize that right? Do you think that's what's happening? Uh, decoupling is that the right word, or is there some other way to describe what's going on? And you know, is it resulting in uh, helping to explain the weakening in trade? Well, I'm not so sure that you, you can say that decoupling is is happening uh, right now. You might say that uh, the uh, de-risking, uh, reducing the concentration risk of, of having uh, all your eggs in one basket in China uh, might be a better way of saying it. But I think it's also a bit too soon to have that as a factor driving the shift in uh, in exports. Uh, I think it's really more uh, the weakness in uh, uh, global demand. And then there's also weakness in domestic demand as well that's uh, pulling down just manufacturing activity across the board. If you look at the purchasing managers index in uh, uh, for China, uh, it's both uh, uh, total production and export production that are both uh, uh, both down. So uh, there is a, a, a weakness uh, uh, across the board. I think um, you can see that also nobody's really... There, 
leaving China in terms of you know foreign manufacturers, they're they're staying put. There's simply a, there is a slowdown right now in new foreign direct investment into China. You can see that there's this pause right now, and I think that's related a lot to some of the regulatory uncertainty in China of what new investors may face uh, as they as they move into China and uh, do business in China. Those who are there, well, they're, they're there. There's a big market in China. They continue to manufacture for uh, the Chinese economy, but there is a, uh, a slowdown in investment. The last numbers that I saw was that uh, foreign direct investment had fallen back recently to about the level it was in 2009. So quite a Quite a quite a change. So uh, the potential for decoupling uh, is uh, there, uh, and, and we certainly see investment, uh, some investment moving to other countries. Uh, but I, I don't think you can blame that for the weakness in exports right now. I think the whole uh, uh, downturn in global trade just uh, overwhelms the rest of the, these other factors. But having said that, if and I'm. I'm speaking from memory, so I, I may have this dead wrong. But if I look at uh, bilateral trade, goods trade between the U.S. and China, and, you know, adding up all the imports and exports that are going back and forth, and I and there's all kinds of measurement issues, obviously, because of the supply chain. You know, the, the the trade is much broader than bilateral trade. It's all the supply chains involved. But just abstracting from that, if I can, if you tell me if I can't, let me know. But I think trade is down quite a bit, isn't it? I mean, you, but you're just saying that's demand. That has nothing to do with decoupling, or as you put it, de-risking. Yeah, well, uh, in in a sense, when you, when you break out the trade, you can see a little bit of a a shift in these uh, trade patterns that could indicate the begin beginning of de-risking or decoupling. And that is that when you look at uh, imports into the U.S. from China of final goods, they're they're pretty strong, and, and of course, you know. Americans buy a, a ton of stuff from China. When you look at uh, intermediate goods, you know the, the goods that go into the production of other goods uh, in, in in the U.S. There there has been a, a measurable decline in intermediate inputs, and uh, that I, I think goes to the point you're making that there is some evidence of, of uh, decoupling or de-risking uh, uh, at the moment. And this is more, in a sense, more of the high-tech components, some of those that are being affected by some of the Western sanctions and also uh, some of the uh, 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 policies to try to attract uh, reshoring of manufacturing. Oh, that's still in the beginning, beginning phases of, of the impact from that. When I say decoupling and you say de-risking, are you just being PC? I mean, I, what's the difference? I mean, the bottom line, it just means less investment, trade, travel, you know, data transfer. Everything is less. Isn't it, yes, maybe de-risking, but isn't that decoupling? <laughs> what's the difference? Well, maybe maybe there's not much of a difference, and maybe it's that we're you've been in, you know you're you've been in Asia too long. You know, that's what's going on. <laughs> I know. Yeah. yeah. The, um, uh, and you're very I, I guess PC. The, the way or, I look at, I mean, but put, tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. Uh, I think it's too soon to say that there's going to be an outright uh, outright decoupling. Of course, I'm not quite sure what outright decoupling even uh, uh, means. Uh, but there will certainly be a a, a a broader distribution of of foreign direct investment around the world. Our economies are less engaged with each other. The, we're doing less trade. We're investing less in each other. We're we're for traveling, the travel is definitely down. You know, mm -hmm. uh, the number of 
uh, Chinese students that came to us um, uh, that have been coming to American universities. That's correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's way down as well. Isn't that, that, that feels like we're okay. Let's, let's maybe pick a neutral world. We're disengaging. Uh, disengage. I'd go with that. Yeah. Okay, that sounds like a good, a good term actually, because the points you make actually are really important in terms of uh, the reduction in trade, uh, which could lead to higher costs longer term because we're not producing in the lowest cost location. And I think there's a, a huge risk in terms of the point you make of fewer um, uh, students coming to the U.S. and the other way around and sharing research and sharing knowledge and so forth. That's got to slow down uh, the, the pace of uh, research and, and uh, knowledge and new products and such. And uh, that I, I worry about that quite a bit, actually. Stevan, do you have a view on this uh, whole decoupling, disengagement, de-risking? Or, or you probably got another German word you can use. Good gosh. Uh, no. <laughs> we, um, up, I, 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 agree, I agree with Steve. It's just very hard to see evidence of this happening in the data yet because you've got all of these bigger effects that have to do with the pandemic, um, the, the surge in global inflation that is throwing the nominal trade data one way and the volumes might be going the other. Huh. Um, then you've got these uh, changed consumption patterns, goods, services, certain types of goods, right? Um, travel coming back, roaring back in a couple of places, but still not being quite back in other places that it just makes it very, very hard to say what is due to what when you've got these big shifts in global trade, like um, FTAs and whatever. Ideally, you have a long time series with a well-established trend, and then you can think about a counterfactual. But right now, <laughs> good luck trying to get that out of the data, right? It's just very hard to say. I think the investment numbers Steve spoke to, they're perhaps the clearest evidence so far that you have some sort of disengagement um, happening, you know, investment into China is just down quite a bit. And um, if that's the way things go, then maybe decoupling isn't a sort of big bang type event that happens mm. suddenly, but might be a little bit more of a slow burn where companies just sort of don't reinvest in China and then capital depreciates. And then that goes on for some time. And in that way, you you uh, decouple or whatever term we want to want to center on. Mm. Hey, Chris, I, you may not have a view on this, but do you? Of course I do. Of, of course. course. <laughs> Far away. Uh, I, yeah. Is it consistent with mine or with, with the, the, these other two fellows? Uh, I'm going with the crowd this time. Oh. <laughs> Far uh, away. Decoupled, right? I think coupling is too, uh, too binary, right? You're either binary. coupled or you're, or you're not, right? It's uh, on or off. You're either together, linked together, or you're, or, or you're not. And that doesn't describe oh. the situation here. We are... We're going to continue to be linked with China to some degree, right? It's just going to be less than it was in the past. Okay, but fair point. I think that's the yeah. Uh, yeah. that's the reason why I think decoupling may not be the right term. Okay, well, let me let's let's, let's uh, take it to the next step, and you yeah. know, let me preface this by saying, you know, I, I and I've said this before, I believe, on the podcast, I, I I do think I am guilty of what is known as home bias. Home bias meaning you think your economy, you know, where you live is better than everywhere else. You know, it's just better. Uh, and, you know, and there, I, I don't think that's universally true, by the way. We've talked about this in the past. You know, culturally, Americans tend to have, I think, more home bias than probably a lot of other cultures. That's just my observation, you know, traveling the world, just nothing scientific there. Uh, just a different kind of different kind of worldview. So I'm I am I I'm sure I'm guilty of it. I'm self aware of it. 
I don't know that I correct for it. But anyway, with that as a preface, uh, my sense is that China's best days are behind it, at least, you know, for the foreseeable future, not forever. You know, I'm not making that kind of grand statement, but, you know, for the next decade or two, I mean, the last two decades for China have been just meteoric, parabolic, you know, kind of growth. And that's over. Uh, And the next 10, 20 years are going to be more difficult, you know, much more of a slog. And one of the reasons for that is, in my view, the U.S. and China, they'll never decouple, but they are decoupling that, you know, we are moving away from each other. We're, 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 we are definitely reorienting our economies in a pretty rapid way. And uh, that hurts everybody. It's no good for anybody, the U.S., China, globally. But it hurts China a lot more because China is a much more open economy. That's they, China feasted on the globalization of the economy and with deglobalization, you know, given that their domestic economy is still struggling to figure out how to get going for lots of fundamental reasons, that, you know, it's going to be a, a, a bit of a slog. And then you've got a, a, a range of other issues that just add on to that narrative. You know, the high leverage. I mean, you know, China has used a borrowing in the household sector, corporate sector, a local government sector to help, you know, drive economic growth through, you know, tougher times. Uh, you go, you know, the poster child for that is the real estate market, which is now vastly overbuilt. You know, built on a lot of a, a lot of debt, and a lot of that debt is now going bad. You've got, you know, issues with a lot of activity being pushed into state-owned enterprises. You know, kind of a move away from the, you know, the uh, efforts and uh, by previous uh, Chinese administrations to push it into the private sector. It's now coming back into state-owned enterprises, and they tend to be highly bureaucratic and very unproductive. And therefore it's going to be a problem in terms of generating product innovation, entrepreneurship and so forth and so on. You've got a, a government that is, um, and then I'll say one more thing and I'll stop and turn it back to you and get your reaction. Uh, you know, you got a government that is, it, it, yeah, I, you know, I think it's fair to say inclined to kind of autocratic rule. I mean, it's one guy, you know, kind of running the show and, you know, that that I don't think is conducive to a well-functioning economy in the long run. Uh, and I, under, you know, I understand there's reasons for that, but that's kind of sort of where we're headed, where it feels like it's headed. Uh, I'll, and, you know, the, I, there's the demographics and the decline in the working age population. I can go on and on and on. Uh, okay, I'll stop. Steve, am I completely infected by home bias here <laughs> or, or what, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, and obviously acknowledging you're an American as well. So, but you, you know, you, you, you've been there for many, a number of years and you've, you know, observed a lot, you know, a lot what's going on there. How do you, how do you, how do you feel about all that? Yeah. So all these factors you mentioned there, they're absolutely true. And I think once you need to separate the, the near term imbalances in the economy, if you can call them that with, with separate those from the longer term trends. I mean, there are very, very serious imbalances. Uh, and the fact that there are multiple imbalances uh, 
really weighs on the economy right now. You know, we often talk about when we look at the risks of the U.S. economy going into recession, uh, we look at uh, potential imbalances that need to be uh, righted. And we've often said that, well, there aren't that many imbalances in the U.S. economy at the, at, at the moment. So even if we fall into recession, it may not be, you know, long lasting. But I mean, I can think of five big imbalances uh, in which there's no certain answer to the outcome uh, uh, right now. And it, you you addressed, I, th I think, all of these, actually. One is the property sector, and that's probably the biggest imbalance in terms of the huge amount of debt and the lack of demand now for housing. Uh, the second is the lack of household spending. China is trying to shift to become more of a domestic consumer-oriented economy, uh, but households continue to save a, a ton uh, partly because there's not much of a social safety net in China, either in terms of unemployment benefits or in terms of uh, benefits for the elderly. And that that's a big impact from the aging of the population in uh, uh, China. Uh, the third is the regulatory uncertainty. I mentioned that in terms of the you know, a factor that's uh, uh, causing uh, foreign investment to, to falter, but even the, the technology industries, or you can, it's something as, simple as the after-school education program, which a year ago, government came down with a surprise policy that, that no one can work, uh, uh, no for-profit company can actually engage in after-school education. Of course, these are huge. Every kid in, in China does something after school. And um, so the, all of a sudden, uh, thousands and hundreds of thousands of, of, of mostly young people lost their jobs. And uh, that, that industry was actually an entry point into the labor market for many recent college graduates. So that avenue of getting into the, uh, the labor market uh, has, uh, has almost disappeared, at least on the surface. Um, and then you've got high unemployment. It kind of relates to, to this factor of uh, recent grads college grads having difficulty finding jobs, the youth unemployment rate, the ages of 15 to 24 is, we think, above 20%, although China has dropped that uh, piece of data from their monthly uh, stream of data, uh, which illustrates sort of the opaqueness now of what's going on in uh, China. And then there's the export weakness, uh, just the, the broad decline in uh, the economy. So five big weaknesses that need to be righted. And some of these aren't going to happen overnight uh, at all. And indeed, the property sector, I think, is going to be the most difficult one to uh, set. So that means, you know, this year, next year, the year after actually could continue to be very modest growth, perhaps nothing no better than what China is experiencing uh, uh, right now. But then you look longer term, right? And I think I think you laid it out pretty clearly that China has gone through a, uh, at least three phases of uh, growth during its its modern era. You can go back to the the first uh, phase was started by Deng Xiaoping. He came into power in 1978. The 1980s were the period of opening up to the global economy uh, that led to uh, ultimately the entry into the WTO and also a more of a market-based uh, economy rather than a centrally driven uh, uh, economy. That was the, the beginning of the boom. Uh, then 
the first hiccup was the global financial crisis in 2008, right? When demand, export demand faltered. So this export model seemed to be at risk. And this is when uh, debt became a primary instrument in terms of continuing to push growth in the economy and the rapid rise of household debt and the rapid rise of uh, corporate debt uh, uh, to keep the Chinese economy going. And it seemed to, to work beautifully, uh, of course, until it, uh, it didn't, and that's the more more uh, recent time. If we look at the you know the the trade war and then the pandemic, and um, the uh, economy slowed, uh, but uh, debt was very high, and this be became a uh, uh, then an issue in terms of how is debt serviced and how can uh, if if we don't continue to um, if if debt isn't continued to be issued, how do you keep the economy uh, uh, going? So. Now we enter this this sort of maybe the post debt driven era, if you can say that. Although I must say, uh, you know, debt to GDP ratios continue to rise, at least for households and for uh, corporates. So we haven't completely exited that yet. Um, but um, how do you shift from that to a, a more self sustaining economy and an economy that doesn't rely as much on external demand but relies more on uh, internal demand? How do you do that? If households are not willing to reduce their amount of savings, well, you know, oh, there's got to. You sound more pessimistic than me. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, well, all all it means is that if if uh, we're we're probably never likely to see um, uh, economic growth uh, above five percent going forward, unless there's sim simply a you know a, a surge or you know a temporary turnaround. Uh, but it feels it feels uh, like though you know right now the the kind of consensus view, I guess, if there's a consensus, is GDP growth around five. That feels 5% per annum. For context, the U.S. potential growth rate is two. And the 5% is, uh, it just feels like to me that that's too high. You know, maybe they get a 5% year, but on average over the next 10, 20. Now, to some degree, that's simply because there's a lot, much larger economy. You just can't continue to grow at that pace given the you know the the size of the economy, but it's it feels like more than that. It feels like they're it's headed it is headed to two percent or something closer to our kind of growth rates here pretty fast. Is that overstating the case? No, actually, that's not overstating the case. That it, as we get into the uh, uh, the next decade, we could we could well see a growth of something between two two and three three percent. We're we're just below five percent right now for this year. We're just below five percent. Uh, next year, and that's sort of accounting for a, a, a little bit of a turnaround in consumer spending uh, uh, next year. So a cyclical but, balance, but longer but, run. But, but lasting a year or so longer run, then uh, the pace of growth will uh, uh, okay. slow as the economy transforms, in a sense, as it should be, from a huge manufacturing economy, you know, based on global trade, to a more domestically driven economy, or maybe a better way to say it is a more balanced economy between domestic demand and uh, and foreign demand. Okay, we're on the. It feels like we're on the same page, Chris. Any pushback there? Is that are you kind of in the same? No, I'm kind of in the same uh, camp. Stefan, you camp too. Here. Yeah, I yeah. um, okay. but you know, we discuss this a lot with uh, clients, prospects, webinar attendees, etc. As well, and the the difficulty in coming up with a sensible medium-term forecast is always that you could conceive of a scenario where policy does, you know, recognize the problem and 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 react in a way that is more forceful than what we anticipate now, because 
this is not an unsolvable unsolvable issue um that that lack of demand that you spoke about earlier that is something that you you know we, we know that that's that's a problem and we know that we would uh, for china to continue growing it would have to have stronger domestic demand so it could make that happen but it just doesn't look like that will that will happen and to the extent that politics plays into that right that's just harder to call than fundamental economic factors good okay all right let's play the game i want to go we're going to come back to japan because japan feels like almost like a, a, a flip story you know japan's been in a funk for well i'll go to it in two minutes play the game uh this, this game you guys are going to play right i didn't even ask you are oh you yeah playing? we're ready sure. stefan are you playing yeah absolutely do you play fair I, i've never played you know with you have you are you uh you play fair I'm too afraid of this game not to play fair. I've, I was very worried about the statistics game. <laughs> okay, very good. The stats game, uh, we each put forward a statistic. The rest of the group tries to figure out what that is through cues and deductive reasoning and clues. And the best stat is one that's uh, not so easy. We get it immediately. Uh, well, that's hard to do when Marissa's in town. Maybe this is going to be a little harder. Uh, I think that will, will be okay there. I'll give them she's traipsing around Japan somewhere and not too hard that we never get it. And if it's apropos to the conversation at hand, all the better. Uh, Steve, you want to go for it? Uh, sure. I'd be happy to. Yeah. All right. So my number is minus 38%. That's a big number. Is it related to what's going on in Asia? Yes. Uh, China specifically. Yes. Okay. Is it trade related? No. That okay. has got to be housing starts or close. house, 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 home sales. Uh, getting closer. House, property, property house prices can't be down 38%. Actually, uh, <laughs> it's close. Oh, house it prices. is house prices. No, it's not house prices, but oh. this is ref- house prices are down by about 25% right now. In, really? In the, I didn't know that. Uh, they were that oh, much. yeah. Huge. So it's not, so, it's not construction. It's not sales. It's not prices. Well, so it's a broad measure. So I'll, okay. I'll tell you, it's it's uh, uh, the decline from peak, uh, which was in April of 2020, of real estate invest total real estate investment. Oh, okay, so it's kind of like construction. It's like the so value. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a not not a number. It's not a unit. It's the value. That, the, that is correct. Okay, that, and is yeah. it real? Is that real or nominal? Do you know? Uh, this is nominal. Nominal dollars. Nominal nominal one, I guess. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, interest down thirty eight percent from the peak. Uh, okay, yeah. Do we want to and, explain? And, well, and that you know that's uh, uh, when the housing uh, market began to falter. That back then in twenty twenty one or a bit before that uh, was when policy changed. The so called three red lines were put into place that limited uh, mortgage uh, 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 borrowing number of units that one could buy. Uh, uh, it limited, you know, second home purchases, third home purchases, and so forth, and uh, put some restrictions on property development uh, a- as well. And so that was the beginning of the downturn in the uh, uh, in the in the housing market. That's also about when the equity market began to falter as well. And the equity market uh, since that time is down by about twenty five percent in uh, China. So it illustrates um, my my earlier point that I think the biggest problem right now in China is at least stabilizing 
the property development sector in in China. It has such an impact broadly across across the economy, both in terms of the uh, the financial side of the economy and in terms of the real economy, jobs, income, uh, the the multiplier effect that we know that uh, construction has uh, everywhere. So there had been some concern that the the collapse—I think that's the right word—collapse—in the Japanese property markets would reverberate around the global economy. You know, uh, come back here, haunt us in the U.S. That hasn't seemed to happen. Have happened. Should we be concerned about that? Well, um, it seems like, the, at least from the uh, financial point of view, that much of it is contained within China. Much of the financing for uh, housing and, and uh, real estate development is within China, so I, I don't think the direct effect, uh, you know, unless there's something we don't know, uh, is, is not so great. But the indirect effect, again, the demand there's a, a tremendous amount of import demand for basic commodities that goes into the construction uh, industry, whether uh, it be copper or steel or uh, uh, cement, things like that. That and that that. Uh, has an impact not so much on the U.S. economy, but on the broader Asia economy. Australia, in particular, a big supplier of commodities for construction purposes in in uh, uh, China. So there there could very well be some indirect effects from the construction industry. But this isn't going to be the thing that does the global or U.S. economy in. It's not. I don't that's think not so. What this is? Yeah, I don't think so. In fact, it could be. I, I'm just putting words in your mouth, but. Let's, let's see if you go along with them, that it might actually be a positive thing in the near term because it's slowing things down and taking pressure off and global inflation. Is that one way of thinking? Because you mentioned commodities and other, you know, less demand, uh, therefore le- lower prices, or am I stretching? Well, it, it did. And in fact, you know, again, that was one of the more positive things about the Asia Pacific economy that was inflation didn't go up as high as in the West and it began coming down. But as, as Chris was noting, it in August the for, for, he was noting for the U.S. in August about half of the Asia Pacific economies had an uptick in inflation and a measurable uptick in inflation, but it wasn't because of anything going on in China. It was rice prices yeah. and fuel prices. So right. again, hopefully temporary. Okay, Steve. Uh, excuse me, um, Chris. You're up. Uh, what's your statistic? Would you like one that's relevant to the Japan-China discussion? Yeah, or yeah go one, ahead. Let's US test these relevant. guys out. I mean, Steve, <clears throat> did you see how gracefully I got to your statistic? I mean, it was, I mean, Chris helped a little bit. It, <laughs> <laughs> You're a great MC, Mark. You 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 manage these uh, really very very well. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. I'm, I I was like angling for like you know my prowess as a, as the stat game player, not. Ah. You know, Oh, well, we'll see how you do this time. Around. Okay, very good. Okay, Chris, you're go ahead, far away. I'll, I'll throw out two then. Uh, two? I think, these, I think, well, chi- Japan uh, and China. Oh, okay. They're oh, related. I just gave it away. All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 1.1 trillion and 822 billion. I know what it is. Dollars, yes. I know, ex- I know exactly. What I knew is. you would. I know immediately. You know, I'm laying it up for and you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to laud it over these two other guys. <laughs> Because they they're gonna like squirm. They're gonna try to figure it out. They don't know. Oh, what is it? What is it? I can tell you right away what it is. Come on, give them a chance. Give them a chance. That's no, Stefan. We are on a hot box Steve, here. Do you want to? Uh, yeah, I was gonna pass it on to you, man. <laughs> Treasury holdings. Oh, yeah, you got it. Oh, very good. Very good, Stefan. Excellent. Very good. I knew he's good. He's good. That's great. 
So yep, go so ahead. And, those are that's a good statistic. Chris. Yeah, U.S. Treasury holdings of the Japanese 1.1 trillion, which is the they're the leader, the largest holdings across the globe, and China is in second place at 822 billion. Still a very large amount, and I think uh, underscores this lack of decouple. We can't fully decouple, right? We there's so much exposure uh, between our two economies that we could certainly reduce, but getting to zero is. That's not happening. So, yeah, that's a good one. I, I want to come back to that too, uh, in the context of this run up in interest rates, because there's a lot sure. of chatter that what's going on in Japan around monetary policies at the root of all this. But uh, before we do that, Stefan, you're up. What's your, uh, what's your stat? And, and by the way, great. You played the game great. Yeah. I, I, I wish I had taken the statistics because I was breaking my you, head you, earlier. But you, what you sort of statistics I should for... Chat GPT or BART or any of that kind of stuff. That was I should funny. have. Yeah, I should have. <laughs> right. The uh, the one that I came up with, we haven't quite gotten around to that yet. But let me let let's see if we can get there. Um, it's a it's a number of times something has happened. Okay, so the number is one hundred and seventy nine. <laughs> hundred and seventy nine times. Yes, this has happened. Um, in Japan. In Japan. In Japan. This is out yeah. of a total of. 391. It has something to do with monetary policy? Uh, yeah. Is it related uh, to interest rate moves? In, no. Indirectly, so, but indirectly. You're not, you're not uh, quite there yet. Yeah. I know. It's, um, uh, it's not related to its yield curve control in some way, is it? I mean, indirectly, given how much the Bank of Japan sort of mandate has expanded, I kind of, <laughs> you know, um, I suppose everything matters in some way, but um, it, it matters very directly for monetary policy. Yes, I mean, but not, yeah, you know, it, yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's. Um, what do you think, Chris? What would that is it a policy? Some some kind of policy change? Uh, not a policy change. No, it's an economic no, statistic. It's in a, it, uh, oh, it is okay. Related to is it the number of months where we saw deflation very very good very close uh i'll, I'll just tell you because otherwise yeah, we have ever, uh is, is the number of times wage growth has turned negative since oh. the early 90s so that is cool yeah, so yeah was, say it again so what is it so how many times does that happen so if you look at um average earnings per worker and you just plot the growth rate in year-on-year yeah. terms, um it's it's been negative for a hundred and seventy-nine of those months. Uh, so you get wow. three hundred and ninety-one months, so three hundred and ninety-one data points, right? And about half of that it's been it's been negative. So I want to get to that later because I do think that's sort of the big thing that ties the whole Japan story together. Um We'll get there, but in any case, yeah, 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 Go there right away. Yeah, you, you know, Steve, do you see how that was done? I'm just, just saying. Do you see how that I, was done? I, I was for that one? examining every word coming out of your mouth at that point, because <laughs> I, because I was actually thinking it was like a basis point change in the ten year yield or something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, hundred seventy nine would be yeah, that's much. pretty good. That's pretty amazing. It'll be a little yeah. more, I know, than than, yeah. than what has been the case. So I kept my mouth shut. All right, we're, I, you know, I just looked at the clock. We've been chatting for quite some time here. That's like, what the heck happened? Uh, so we got to get moving. I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip my statistic for the sake of you know time because I, I know, I, I was, 
uh, it's late in in Tokyo. It's it's a Friday night, so it's, it's fine. Friday. No. It's Friday night. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. Friday night. It's Friday night in Tokyo. Okay, so um, Stefan, uh, yes. Sort of my th- thinking around Japan is, you know, it's been a mess for a long time. Nineteen ninety kind of is in my mind as kind of the point in time where Japan went from being this kind of boom, meteoric rise to basically going nowhere fast. Uh, and that's a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And Japan's been struggling with trying to get out of this, let's call it a funk. Is there a good German word for funk? You know what I'm saying? Good. Is Nothing there... I could think of that would be quite okay. as elegant. Is there a good so Japanese word for funk? What, what do the Japanese call it? <laughs> I suppose I would say funk as well. <laughs> funk as well. I don't know. Okay. It's a good word, actually. It's a really good word. It's a word. good word. It's a good, it's word. good word. Yeah, it's a very good yes. word. Funk. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, meaning uh, disinflation, deflation, you know, obviously the population growth has been declining. Growth mm-hmm. has been very slow. You mentioned that great statistic about real uh, wages falling on a consistent basis. It's been really going nowhere fast. Uh, but it now feels somehow, some way, and I'm not just saying we're going to go back to the meteoric kind of growth we've had, you know, back in the eight seventies and eighties, but it feels like we, that Japan's kind of broken free from the funk, you know, that kind of sort of black hole, partly because of the pandemic and the policy response to that pandemic. Uh, you know, all the fiscal stimulus, all the monetary stimulus seems to like push things forward. We're now starting to see positive wage growth, you know, not, uh, you know, consistent positive wage growth. Inflation feels like it's now back closer to target. The Bank of Japan is now even starting to tighten monetary policy a little bit. I mentioned yield curve control. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. Do I have do I have this right? So that like the next 10 years, next not forever, but the next 10 years of foreseeable future, Japan might have a kind of a brighter economic outlook. Uh, am I overstating the case or what do you think? No, I think I think there's a lot of what you said is 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 true. Um, Japan is getting a lot of attention at the moment. It's also something I've noticed. Um um, which I think um, is due to a couple of couple of different things. Um, we've had a pretty solid run of data over the last year, and you spoke to the GDP numbers. The other macro data has been looking pretty good as well. Stock market has done well, and wage and price dynamics are undergoing pretty big shifts if you compare to compare them to compared to what happened the last thirty years, right? Um, I think there's also the recognition out there that Japan has just has done pretty well over the last ten to twenty years. Even um, it's sort of it's very hard to say when the lost decades that you that you point to there, um, you know, the 1990s, um, did that stretch into the 2000s? When did it start? When did it stop? It's kind of hard to say. But what I like to look at is per capita GDP growth. And if you plot that from, I think, 2000 to now, um, Japan has basically done about as well as every other G7 economy, which oh, is not something that I think is really? widely huh. appreciated. Yeah. yeah. Of course, you have those... Um, you know, challenging demographics that kind of ruin the aggregate macro numbers. So no one really notices that 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 growth is pretty decent on that level. But um, I think it's so, so the, so the funk is really demographic. It's like the declining population is really the funk, right? It's, it's, a, it's a part of it. It's a good part yeah. of it. I don't want to yeah. overstate the role of demographics, but it does ruin yeah. your macro numbers. So there's right. no you know no 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 debate about that. What I'm a little worried about is um, whether it's as much about perception as it is about facts, because um, Japan is a pretty stable place. And uh, you've noticed this when you come here, right? It's mm. um, 
the stability is, is, is I always say it's a feature, it's not a bug, right? We used to say this head in computer science mm. when there was a problem, it's not a bug, it's a feature. Um, so it's not a place that changes suddenly. So to that extent, all of these things that um, I would argue are a strength of the Japanese economy, they they didn't just appear somewhere out of nowhere. They've, they've been around for some time. So I'm a little bit worried that all the attention Japan is getting right now is is external and then might also evaporate uh, very quickly. So um, yeah, that maybe puts a little bit of an, of an asterisk onto, onto the whole story. But broadly, I, I agree. I'm, I'm pretty positive on the long run in Japan. In, you know, this kind of, uh, improved picture, mm-hmm. uh, kind of post pandemic. Do you think, in, in what you're saying, is that that may be overstating the case because it really wasn't quite as bad as it seems looking at the aggregate statistics? Because if you're in a world of declining population, it's you know it's going to be pretty hard to get big growth rates. And you're saying yep. that's a feature and not a bug anyway. There's there's people are pretty they're okay with kind of steady as you go kind of growth stable low unemployment i mean the unemployment rate in japan is what two seven two eight mm-hmm. it's rock solid two, seven. never really yep. rose during the pandemic you know maybe on the margin really and 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 therefore you're giving up that kind of meteoric growth for this kind of stability you know in the economy and that seems like a pretty good trade-off trade-off at least for the japanese people mm-hmm. uh so i don't want to overstate, overstate the case but does it feel like japan's got a little bit more life here you know going forward compared to recent decades or am i it does it does feel like that okay potentially yeah i think yeah. um the, the context of course matters all of that decoupling decoupling stuff that we talked about earlier that does play into how people look at japan if you're um if you're decoupling if you're trying to reduce concentration risk um and you're you're trying to find an, a new place that can that still makes stuff, right? Japan is an economy that still mm. has a pretty large manufacturing sector, and of course, Japan will be high up on that on that list. Um, the other things that are changing in Japan, much of that is externally driven as well, though. So you know, these changes in price and wage dynamics that we spoke about, all of that is coming from abroad, right? It's due to higher energy and food prices. Those are commodities Japan imports, so it's also supply driven, and it's not exactly organic. Now it's possible that that might shake things in Japan lose and going forward you will have a bit more domestically driven demand driven inflation but um I'm not quite convinced it will stick yet I think you will need more for that to for that to happen so maybe not a binary question so to speak right like much of what we discussed today so um yeah that's how I would look at it hmm. um okay so um again looking at this from uh, a kind of a more global perspective u.s perspective you know one of the kind of results of this improving i put i use air quotes so just not quite sure but seemingly improving economic picture is the bank of japan is in fact kind of taking its foot off the accelerator certainly not putting its foot on the brakes but taking its foot off the accelerator one way it's doing that is it's easing its uh, so-called YCC yield curve control. The, the basically, bottom line, tell me if I'm wrong, but that is the the uh, BOJ, the Bank of Japan, had previously it still is targeting long-term interest rates and yeah, doing whatever it needs to do to make sure that inter- the long-term interest rates don't rise above a certain level. They've they've lifted the caps on that uh, on uh, the, those long-term interest rates, and so. Uh, Japanese long rates have started to rise, and there has been this 
chatter in, mar- in the mar- global marketplace, bond market, fixed income markets, that that is one of the reasons for why we're seeing global interest rates rise, why 10-year treasury yields in the United States are now four and a half percent. You know, if you go back a month ago, two months ago, they were three and a half percent. If you go back, you know, three years ago, they were below two. Lots of things, obviously, lots of things going on there. But one of the things going on there is this uh, relaxation of uh, the cap on uh, Japanese long-term interest rates. What do you think of that uh, story? Is that is that is that uh, do you buy into that? Not quite, I would say. Um, the reason is mostly because um, the changes on the long end are they, they're just too small. I feel like um, for that to, to to matter to that extent. Um, so maybe just to step back a little bit, what you the way you characterize BOJ policy is 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 one hundred percent correct. They have this policy where they pack the long uh, the ten year ten year government bond yield within a certain corridor, and they've been. Uh, increasing the range within which it could fluctuate around that 0% target. They've been saying that they're not really moving away from the policy. They want to maintain, they want to continue to ease, but that's, you know, you're raising interest rates. So you, you, you don't you don't make easing more sustainable by raising interest rates. So it's um, interest rates are going up. So to that extent, they are tightening. That's, that's correct. Why... Um, the reason I'm not 100% convinced um, it's having that big of an effect on global global bond markets has to do with um, everything else that's going on. I mean, interest rates have gone up a little bit, but um, you know they they well they're now 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8, uh, starting from 0. 0.5. So that's like 20, 20, 30 bips, right? Before that, they were at 25. So um, these are pretty modest, modest, modest changes. So um, I think interest rates would have to go up quite a bit more for Japanese investors really to pull out of U.S. markets and then um, invest invest more at home. There's other factors as well. I mean, Japan has a big external surplus, a big current account surplus, and that generates revenue abroad, which will want to get invested somewhere. Um, Last year, when Japan sort of reduced uh, holdings of foreign securities, that was also at the time when the current account surplus evaporated because of the commodity price shocks, because mm-hmm. uh, trade trade didn't go anywhere, right? Um, all of these things. So um, unless the world economy changes in a bit more fundamental ways, you know, where that whole decoupling thing or countries turning more inward um, um, becomes more extreme, I don't really see these things changing all that drastically. I think the view of bond markets is also a bit simplistic as always thinking that, you know, it's always about interest rates. Um, Japanese investors might capital gains play into all of this as well, right? If you are an insurer, you might hold on to your government bonds because you don't want to realize paper losses. On the other hand, you might move into a market ahead of great cuts to then take capital gains. So if things were really changing, we would see that. We would see that show up in uh, financial market data. And right now, if you look at things like swaps, et cetera, they don't really suggest that. Uh, investor behavior has f- changed all that fundamentally. They haven't. They haven't changed all that drastically. So that's why I'm a little bit skeptical about the idea that that's really what's moving um, global global markets. Certainly at the margin, but I'm just not convinced that it's like that big a factor. I would say. Hmm. Just uh, is that is that kind of the consensus in Japan? I mean, that it's not really that it's on the market, or is there no consensus? It's just not a matter I'm, of conversation. I'm not sure that there's a consensus around that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. probably a little bit too niche. <laughs> Yeah, a little bit too, yeah, in our own parochial you know world. One other quick question again from the prism of the U.S. Uh, the mm-hmm. the currency, the yen, it's yes. been weak, really weak. Uh, and uh, you know what? What are we? One? I haven't looked recently. One forty-five yen to the dollar, something like that. One forty-nine point one before we started oh, the podcast. Wow! So this yeah. is almost back to the lows uh, mm-hmm. for the yen. Um, mm-hmm. Is 
so so what's going what's going on there and uh you know is that is that just relative monetary policy the you know the kind of the, the japan boj is just even though it's taking the foot off the brakes the yep. other countries are putting their foot on the brake. So that's that inf- interest rate differentials driving this. Is that all that is what's going on here? That's the dominating story. That's certainly yeah. the okay. mainstream mainstream view. Um, and I think at this point, it's probably hard to argue that it's other things because yeah. um, okay. fundamentals look a whole lot better than they did last year um, in Q3 when the yen last appreciated to 100 and 150. So that was uh, uh, October, I think, last year. Um, that was also when the external balance was 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 very weak, right? No exports at all, um, supply chain disruptions, um, no travel, um, profits not looking great. So all of that is looking better now, um, which um, means right now actually the yen seems a little bit out of whack with with fundamentals, um, a little bit too weak. Um, but it wasn't always like that. I mean, it, it, the, 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 this correlation between the yen and um, long-run interest rates, that really only started around the um, COVID pandemic. Before then, it's actually, if you plot them on top of one another, it's very hard to actually make out a very strong very strong correlation. And there have been many periods where the interest rate differential widened significantly, but the yen didn't do very much. So, um, you know, short run versus long run, right? Right now, there's yeah. just a ton of attention on the, on the yield spread. Yeah. Okay. Do I have this right? The U.S. is the largest economy on the planet. China's number two. Japan's number three, right? Isn't Correct. it? Correct. Number mm-hmm. three. I think people forget that. It's like a massive yep. economy. It's like huge. Still. I think Germany's number four, isn't it? I believe. Yeah. And yeah. interestingly, might overtake Japan soon. Germany might? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Interesting. Okay. In nominal terms. In nominal terms. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. One last question. Um how do the Japanese view the Chinese? I'll ask you, Stefan, first, and then Steve. How do the Chinese view the Japanese? Uh, you know, given all the tensions in the in the Asia Pac region, you know, it goes beyond economics. Geo, there's a lot of geopolitical tension. Can, uh, answer that however you want, but uh, maybe Stefan first. Uh, you know, how did the Japanese uh, view the the Chinese? Gosh. Uh... There's so much that could be said about that relationship. Oh, that um, it's very complex, I'm sure. It, certainly, history. I mean, with, with history, history exactly. Complex, yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Sorry, I don't, that, I don't mean to go down a rabbit hole, but uh, there's that's. I mean, that still factors into everything today yeah. as well. You know, modern debates are still very much um, informed by um, everything that happened um, uh, hundred years ago. Um, I would say maybe to keep it in in in, in economic terms, I think. Um, it's just it's a difficult balancing act this relationship with China because um, Japan is an economy that is also deeply integrated with China. China was one of the first places where Japanese businesses invested in um, after the domestic economy crumbled, right? A lot of offshoring mm-hmm. that took place in the 1990s, um, and Japan also benefited from Chinese growth for quite a significant amount of time, exporting capital goods, exporting infrastructure, the train system in China, right? Is a lot of that is Japanese technology. Um, so um, the business interests are deeply, deeply tied to China. But on the other hand, um, on the political level, things are not quite as quite as comfortable. You still have territorial conflicts, you have mm-hmm. um, geopolitical tensions, and um, that's certainly increased in recent in recent years over the last ten years or so. So a difficult relationship, maybe to some extent. Yeah. Right. And Steve, you want what's the Chinese perspective on the Japanese economy? All right. I think it's quite similar. Similar, yeah. And I think, um, actually, this goes back centuries. 
that the balance of power yeah. is shifted one way or another. There is an excellent book I would recommend for anyone to read uh, by uh, Ezra Vogel, who was a professor at Harvard. And he wrote a book, I, th I, I think the title was simply Japan and China or something like mm. that. And it traced this relationship from mm. the beginning of time. Fasc absolutely fascinating book mm. and how the two countries have benefited from their relationship, but it's always been a contentious uh, relationship uh, mm. since, you know, for cent centuries. Oh yeah, we gotta we gotta, I gotta read that book. Uh, it's, it's, we'll put that in the well uh, podcast notes so, so the listener can uh, get to it easily. So, well, good. I you know we're long in the tooth here, as they say, and uh, I think we need to call it quits. Let Stefan go get some uh, some rest. And um, uh, I want to thank you guys. I mean, that you know the conversation was wonderful. It just shows the depth of knowledge you know that you have. So you know, thank you. Uh, and the fact that you got Chris to agree with you, I don't know that says a whole lot, but you know. Hey, Maybe. Hey, what is that? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you know, I'll take Chris I, I on my I side. I love you, Chris. Day. I'm just, <laughs> you know that. Take that as a win. <laughs> yeah, take that as a win. Absolutely. Uh, okay. With that, we're going to call this, uh, I think we're going to, unless you guys object, I'm sure you're not going to object. Uh, hearing no objections, we're going to call this a podcast. Uh, take care, everyone. Bye.